Our text tonight is the Gospel of John and chapter number 2. John chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to stand and read the Word of God beginning in verse number 1. Now, if you need to remain seated for physical reasons, that's obviously fine. We're going to read the first 11 verses of the Gospel of John and chapter number 2. It says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, if you went back into chapter, 50, uh, chapter 1, rather, uh, you would see that Jesus had spoken to uh, Peter and Andrew and to James and John. He'd already addressed Philip and Nathaniel. And so very, very early, obviously, in his public ministry. And here in John chapter 2, the record of the first miracle, the first recorded miracle of Jesus. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Strange words to many ears. Why would he answer his mother that way? I have to tell you that I preach a whole sermon out of verse 4 alone. So I'm trying not to get hung up there, or we'll never get out of here tonight. But I'm just saying, there's a whole lot that could be said about uh, verse number 4, and it has something to do with uh, what we were preaching about the disciples the other night, that they didn't yet fully understand Messiahship, and that Jesus must suffer and die. And just because this was uh, Jesus' mother doesn't mean she had a handle on everything that was going on, uh, and everything that would happen, because she manifestly did not. Nonetheless, he said, What have I to do with thee, which is not disrespectful? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, very wisely she said this, his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith to you, unto you do it. That's good advice, don't you think? Or is this not on? I said, That's good advice, don't you think? Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. That's good advice. We can preach there a while. Verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, the servants, and they, the servants, filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler, same as the governor, when the ruler, governor of the feast, had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was. I love this part. But the servants which drew the water knew. The man in charge didn't know, but the servants did. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept a good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. 
Once more, Father, we ask your blessings upon the time and the word. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. All the months are kind of running together in my mind in this pandemic thing. So I can't remember exactly when it was, but it runs in my mind it was the end of March, maybe it was into April, that uh, I got a phone call from a youth pastor in West Virginia. And uh, he said, now, Brother Davison, you and I have met before. I don't know if you'd remember or not, and then talk about that a second. And he said, uh, we have an annual youth rally here in uh, our church, and churches from all around, uh, independent Baptist churches come, and it's a, it's a much anticipated and a, and a really good youth rally every year, but obviously because of the uh, virus and the pandemic, we're not going to be able to assemble. So we've decided to have a virtual youth rally, and all the youth workers are promoting it to the young people, and on a certain date, they had their speaker lined up and everything, and on a certain date, they're all going to tune in with their devices while they're shut in at home, and they're still going to try to enjoy this, you know, how this thing goes. So they're going to try to enjoy this youth rally together that way. And he said, what I'm doing is I'm calling uh, several pastors. Uh, I'm looking for pastors uh, that have been in the ministry a while and that will uh, just make a short video that we're going to send in preparation for this youth conference that will make a short video and we want our young people to hear from the older generation some words of wisdom. So would you make up a video? Would you, would you take time to do this? I, I would appreciate it if you'd make up a video and just give us some words of wisdom to uh, promote this meeting and to uh, share with all the young people from all the churches. And uh, I said, well, if you want me to, sure, I'll do that. I've got time. I can do that. And if it'll help or you think it'll help, I'd be glad to do that. And he said, now, here's the thing. He said, you say whatever you want to, but you got 10 seconds. And when I told my wife 10 seconds, she about died laughing and said, you can't even imagine, let your imagination go. You can't do anything in 10 seconds. So he said, now, we need to have this in. He gave me a deadline, said we need to have it in. So I didn't make it right away. I waited, in fact, and uh, made the video on the day that was the deadline. And so I worked on this and decided this is what I'm going to say. So my words of wisdom to them in 10 seconds, here's how it went. Jesus said he came to give life abundantly. You have one life. Give your life to Jesus. Now, it took exactly 10 seconds. And I was so proud of myself for doing the 10-second thing, I couldn't hardly stand it. But anyway, it took exactly 10 seconds. Now, I want to say to you, those are words of wisdom. Not because I said them, but because we have the authority of the Bible to say what we said. Jesus said he came to give life abundantly. You have one life. It's as true as everyone sitting here as everyone that watched that video. You have one life, and the best thing you can do is give your life to Jesus. Now, we understand, we've already touched on this some, but we understand that not everybody is really seeking someone to run their life. Not everybody wants to do that. 
In fact, there are some that uh, are resistant uh, to any suggestion as though this is, you're trying to run my life. And uh, so my wife and I have been married 54 years, and I'm still trying to run her life. Oh, no, I'm still trying to help her and suggest things along the way. And she says, uh, when are you going to learn that I respect you as my husband and as the head of our home, but I don't want you running every detail of my life? So I talked to her about some of her diet uh, this week. And, uh, boy, I got uh, an ugly test with some ugly faces on it and stuff like that. So she doesn't want me running that part of her life. And uh, every time she suggests some nags me, not nags me, but suggests that I do certain things, you know, I say, quit trying to run my life. Brother Fong knows uh, Brother Jeff Copes, or maybe he's been here. Has Brother Copes been here? And so some of you know Brother Copes, a consummate co-worker, helper, par excellent, a, a dear servant of God, and a friend as well. And uh, Brother Copes was always calling me, reminding me of this. I don't know if he thought I was getting old and forgetful or what the deal was. But he's always calling and reminding me of this and informing me of this. And I'd say, Brother Jeff, quit trying to run my life. And he would just laugh and keep calling, you know. (laughs) And uh, I haven't been the president of the school now for a year and a half, and he's still calling. And I accuse him of trying to run my life. And, uh, and so uh, most people don't. There are people probably sitting right here in this room that they're a husband and wife relationship. You, you might uh, have some resistance there. There might be young people that are just counting the days till they get out of the house and nobody's going to tell them what to do. And so they go to Bible college and somebody's telling them what to do, you know, or join the military and somebody's telling them what to do. But they think they're going to escape that. And they don't really. But, but let's stop and think a minute. As much as someone might resist that, we're, we're talking about Jesus. Now, you would think immediately that the people of God would have a whole different attitude about Jesus running their life. But uh, uh, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I suppose, to many, uh, there are some that, are, that repel that idea as well. And they won't say it out loud. But the idea is, no, 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 I want Jesus. Oh, I I need forgiveness of my sin. I want him to save me from my sin. I want him to save me from hell. But take charge of my life? Well, uh, that's not really what I'm looking for. And I think it's good we're all reminded who Jesus is. He's called in the Bible our... Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another one of the ways he is uh, described is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Another way he is described is Lord of Lords. And the term Lord is a part of who he is. It may have been Tozer, I think it was, that said Lordship or being Lord is not what Jesus does. That's who he is. And there are people that want to talk about Jesus. Yeah, well, I do too. I want to sing about Jesus, and I love to sing about that lovely name of Jesus. And there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I like that too. Jesus, it means the Deliverer, the Savior. I like that. And Christ, the Anointed One, there's not another 
The anointed one, when John the Baptist said at the Jordan River, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He is basically announcing, there is your Messiah right there. There's the anointed one. And that's who he is. The chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. But his name is also Lord. And that's not going to go away. Just because people may not want his authority in their life, who he is is not going to change just because there are self-centered people that want Jesus to forgive them of their sin and, 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 and keep them from going to a place called hell. But they are really not interested in the preacher standing up and confronting them face to face that he is Lord and he means to be Lord. I think I'll run that by one more time. He is Lord and he means to be Lord. Of your life and of my life. Just a little reminder, Lord has to do with his authority, you know. The Lord has to do with being ruler, controller, supreme master. That's part of the definition of Lord. Supreme master. Yeah. That's who he is. Now... <clears throat> It should be said, too, that for you and I to come under the authority of Jesus Christ and actually live under his supreme mastery is not a heavy burden. Some people look at it like, oh, man, I, I, I lose my life. Somebody ought to preach about that sometime. You can save yourself from his authority and his lordship, but you lose the benefits and the life that he would have for you. When he said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, he didn't mean that that's going to be the automatic result for everyone, but those who come under his lordship are going to understand something about the abundant life. And, and this is not a big burden. Pastor's preaching, he mentioned through the book of 1 John on Sunday night. And, uh, and there in the book of John, when he's talking about the, uh, the mastery or, or, and the, and the uh, commands of Jesus, and, and where Jesus said, no, this is in John chapter 13, not 1 John. And it's in John chapter 13, and he said that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. I believe that is in 1 John. I should have looked it up before I came if I'm going to use it right, but you can figure it out yourself. But he said that we uh, prove our love to him by keeping his commandments, watch this, and his commandments are not grievous. In other words, it's not a burdensome and heavy thing to come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and live our life under his mastery, yes, ladies and gentlemen, to live our life with him in charge. That's not a heavy burden. <laughs> That's a great blessing. Well, are we going to get to the text? Yep, right now. Because we're going to see what happens. Basically, we're going to see what happens when Jesus takes charge. Great account here. I mean, that goes without saying. The marriage at the Cana, or the marriage at Cana of Galilee. Now, just a little background here about this marriage and what was going on. You have to understand that a marriage to people, the common people of the Jews, a marriage was an incredibly special event. And uh, 
if you and I understood something more than we know of the burden under which these Jews lived under the Roman oppression, then we might understand why an occasion like a marriage would be at least a little spell in their life where they were relieved from some of the burden that was upon them and some of the oppression that was upon them and they could have two or three days of joy and celebration and that would be kind of pushed out of their mind because that's the way their weddings were they were often a two three day affair not just come at a certain time we're going to have the wedding ceremony and then you can go eat and talk to people and greet the uh, give good wishes to the bride and the groom and then go on your way in a couple hours you can be gone It wasn't that way. They celebrated, and they celebrated big time. You have to understand also that Cana of Galilee is not a big town. It's not even, it's a, it's a, it's more like a village. Uh, it's there near Nazareth. It's just a few miles. I think no farther than 10 miles from Nazareth. Probably not as big a village or town as Nazareth was. And Nazareth was not a famous and a big major hub of anything. That's why that, uh, that's why that, uh, Philip or Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth didn't have this reputation and, and Cana of Galilee had even a less reputation. We think of it nicely in our minds only because that's where his first miracle was performed. If you live in that day, this was no special place and it was not inhabited by any kind of a special people. So they would have been the peasant class of people. I think it would be safe to say. The peasant class of people. That means they didn't have much. That means they were poor. I don't know about you, but I believe here in the United States, uh, we probably are carrying a greater tax burden, some states more than others, uh, but we are probably carrying a greater tax burden than our founding fathers meant for us to live under. But I'm going to guarantee you right now, those that are under the heaviest tax burden would not want to trade places with Israel under Rome. The oppression was horrific. And it was terrible. It made it impossible for the common people to get ahead and to gain any traction and get anywhere. Yeah, at least honestly. And, and so you have to understand this is a great celebration. It's a great time. Now, one of the things also is that at every one of their weddings, they served wine. Now, you're in uh, vineyard country here. At least I remember going to a couple's retreat here a number of years ago and going up north and I can't remember the name of the place, but there's vineyards all over everywhere. And I've driven across enough of California to see vineyards and just that's all you can see for a space. And just uh, vineyards and vineyards. Well, we don't have much of that in Oklahoma. I don't know much about vineyards. But I can tell you this, that there, when they uh, would gather or, or gather for a ceremony like this, they were going to have wine. And wine, as many of you already know, doesn't demand that it was intoxicating. In fact, to think that Jesus would serve or distribute an intoxicating beverage would be totally contrary to the Word. And so there's not a chance that the living Word is going to violate the written Word. I said, that's not going to happen. And uh, woe to the man that put the bottle to his neighbor's lips. And so there's no way that Jesus is making here anything. It just had to do with the juice of the grape. That's all, that's all it had to do with. And it was a delicacy. 
Oh, if you're in the upper echelon of society, you probably drank it every single day. But if you're of the peasant class, like they more than likely would have been at this uh, Cana of Galilee, then for them to have wine, this is an expensive item. And a little study on the history of this shows that oftentimes they would plan the wedding far enough ahead where they could save money. They would try to get extra money. Family members are joined together. And one of the primary things that they would do is make sure that there is plenty of wine because if you have this ceremony and you don't offer your guests wine, you've insulted them. And if you don't have enough wine, then the people that come that didn't get any wine, they are highly insulted. Culturally, you just didn't do that. But it about happened here. I don't know why it happened. It doesn't say. I don't know whose wedding it was. I read some commentators. Pastor thought they knew who was getting married. Now, I can't figure for the life of me how they figured that out. Who's getting married? doesn't say. Nor how many people came. But I do know that they did come to this point. Maybe it was the third day. Maybe more people came than expected. Who, who knows? Jesus and the disciples were there. Maybe that attracted some attention, even at that early stage. I don't know, but I just know that Mary came to Jesus and said, They have no wine. Woman? Right there are people that get offended. He called her woman. Well, he is a woman. I'm sorry. She was a woman. She was a woman. It's really weird to me how my wife and I walk in some place. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. And I'm looking at her thinking, hey, nothing about her makes me think guy. And yet, if you call a woman a woman, you insult them. If you call my woman a guy, that's an insult to me. I didn't marry a guy. On purpose, I married the kind of person. There's, you know, the only made man and woman. I said that needs to be said all over our society right now. That's all he made was a man and woman. So Jesus said to, to his mother, said, woman, which, by the way, would have in their culture, and the word that he used there was an endearing term, certainly nothing disrespectful, an endearing term, a tender term, when Jesus said to his mother, woman, what have I to do with thee? And that itself is not insulting. When Jesus said, what have I to do with thee? It's like, why are you bringing this up to me now? And then he says, mine hour is not yet come. It'd be like if somebody came and said, Brother Sam, let me tell you something. And you start telling me something that I know is a bunch of baloney and you think it's the truth. I'm going to say, get out of here with that. Now, I don't mean for you to leave the building when I say, get out of here. Have you ever heard that? Uh, kind of, you know, you've heard that line maybe, oh, get out of here. Well, you don't mean the person. Well, some cases it might be someone you want out. But anyway, you, you generally don't mean that. You just think, no, I reject that idea. And that's the kind of line that Jesus gave his mother. She said, they have no wine. And he said tenderly, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So when he says, what have I to do with thee? It is that, mother, this is not something that you have understanding of, basically is what he is saying. And he said, it is not time in my father's purposes and in my father's plan for you to be expecting me to do this. You think Mary fully, oh, I see. I don't think she said that. I think she looked at her son and said, Whatever he says to you, do it, said to the servants. Whatever he says to you, do it. Wonder, wonder why she went to Jesus. You know, he was in her home till he was about 30. So that's quite a time of observation of one's life, isn't it? 
She not only saw him in the teenage years and those development, you know, when he, he could not be found and said, wish you not that I must be about my father's business. And not only that, but she saw him in his early 20s and saw him into the 25, 26, 28, 29, and he was about 30 when he left home. She probably observed, you know, everything that ever came up around our house, he seemed to know what to do. He seemed to have the right answer. He seemed to have a perception, an understanding. If you don't think he did, I think you're missing out on something here. And she came to him and said, they have no wine. And Jesus gives her this answer. And then his mother said to the servants, uh, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, verse number 6 says, there were six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. And it contained two or three perkins apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. And so you go through to, well, at the end of verse number 8, they draw the wine out of the water pots, which we'll talk more about them in just a little bit, and drew the wine out, and they bear it, and then they serve that wine. Now, listen up here just a second. When Jesus takes charge, which he manifestly did, as soon as he began to tell the servants what to do, he was in charge of the whole thing. Well, they had a governor. He was in charge. Sorry, like a lot of governors, he didn't really know what was going on. Ooh, that fit in there right perfect, didn't it? Like a lot of governors, he didn't really know what was going on, but Jesus knew what was going on. And make no mistake about it, when Mother had said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it, it was at that point that Jesus took charge of this situation. And the point I want to make is this, that when Jesus takes charge, he will give attention to simple human need. Let's think about something for a moment. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? We know who he is. He is God made flesh. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Isaiah prophesied and said, and his name shall be called the, let's see, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Whoa, stop right there. When this Messiah comes, his name will be, will be called Wonderful and Counselor, the Mighty God. Every cult everywhere should ought to pay attention to that. That Jesus Christ is not who they wish he was or who somebody of their leadership imagined him to be. He is who he is, the mighty God, the everlasting Father in the flesh. Here he is at a marriage in Cana of Galilee tending to a simple human need. I don't know if that affects you or not. To me, it's amazing. You see, uh, mentioning him being home for about uh, almost 30 years, he was about 30 when he left, when he was baptized with John in the river and then went to be tempted and then started his public ministry, and here he is right at the very beginning of it. And uh, did you ever stop to think that he had, now watch this, God who came here in the flesh began his public ministry about the age of 30, and he had a window of about three years. To fulfill his father's purposes. Three years. Excuse me. Let's run this by again. God 
came down in the person of man. And his name is Jesus. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus came here as a man and had this space for about three years. You know, you know how I think about it? God's given me a window of 54 years to serve him as a preacher. Well, that's a long time compared to three years. And though he had this very small window, to, watch this, to train his disciples, to prepare them, here he is at the marriage of Cana of Galilee, and to do all the work that he was going to do in all the places that he was going to do it. And here he is at marriage of Cana in Galilee, and Mary comes and says to him, they have no wine. Uh, who would have been shocked if he would have said, uh, I mean, at that stage, who would have been shocked if he would have said, um, I've come here to give life and to give it more abundantly. I've come to do my Father's purposes, and I only have a short space in which to do this. And uh, turning, uh, uh, providing wine at a wedding in a little village like Cana for an insignificant family like these peasants here is really not a part of why I came. Now, I know it's unthinkable that he would do that because we know Jesus in the Bible. But who would have been shocked at that time if he would have said a thing like that? But no, that's not what he did. When she said, uh, they have no wine, and he answered her, then he turns immediately to the servants and goes into action. He takes charge of that wedding. And what I'm trying to show is that Jesus Christ, he gives attention to simple human need. No wine at a wedding? How big does that measure in the eternal purposes of God? Well, bigger than you would think just looking at it, apparently. I said, bigger than it would look from human eyes, just looking at the big picture must have been very important because Jesus tended to this simple human need. Why did he do that? Well, see, he's going to do the miracle we're still talking about today. I get it. But why? Just put yourself back there at that time. Why did he do this? I'll tell you why he does it. And why he did and does tend to simple human need. Can I have your attention? He came here as a man. He understands simple human need. He walked here before as a man. My Bible says that it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to things of God. So when Jesus came, so that he might be a merciful and faithful, a compassionate high priest, then he came here as a man, and he experienced what men experience. He did. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has entered into heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I'm here to tell you tonight, not only did he understand human need, he does understand human need. And when he takes charge of your life, you don't have a human need that he is indifferent to. Not one. Well, you may not understand my situation. Brother Sam, because you see, I am very, very lonely. As a pastor, I've dealt with lonely people before. But you want to talk about lonely? 
Jesus knew what loneliness was. They all forsook him and fled. Judas was dead. Eleven men left. They all forsook him and fled. Uh, Peter denied him. They all forsook him and fled. It says it in Matthew, and it says it in Luke, and it says it in Mark. They all forsook him and fled. Alone? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was the cry of Jesus on the cross. You want to talk about somebody that knows loneliness? Jesus knows loneliness. You know why he contend to that need? And we would tell somebody that is in the very grips of loneliness and almost despair. You know why we can teach them and encourage them to lean upon Jesus? Because more than any of us, no matter what our experience has been, more than any of us can even comprehend and understand, Jesus can help that soul and help your soul because he knew loneliness. Yes, he did. Yes, but you don't understand. I'm going through a time of real temptation. I'm tempted because I have this opportunity and that opportunity. I'm tempted to back off because I'm having this kind of pressure or that kind of pressure. I'm just tempted. Yeah, he was tempted. Come on, we talked about the temptation from the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was unhungered. Turn these stones into bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And when the disciples came, at the, well, when he met with the woman at the well, they said to him, uh, you need to take meat. We went into town and we got bread and we got food. You need to take meat. He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. That's what he said. Yeah, he knows what temptation is. Yes, but I've been betrayed. You want to talk about somebody that knows betrayal? I repeat, they all forsook him and fled. Not just Judas who went out and hanged himself. They all forsook him and fled. You want to talk about somebody that can help you when you've been betrayed? which happens to almost all of us somewhere in the course of our life when we have this sense that we have been betrayed. And I'm not minimizing the pain of it. I know just a little bit of it myself, but I know who to take it to because he understands the most simple human need. Tempted, this is either true or not true, Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Inevitably, somebody will come up and say, yeah, but what about this? Was he tempted? Uh, Well, what did he say? What does the book say? Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, Yeah, but what about this? And then uh, what did it say? Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. It's really a blessing to be able to stand before a congregation like this or a congregation anywhere and assure them, if you will let Jesus have charge of your life, then you're going to have a friend that sticketh close to a brother and doesn't, uh, listen, you won't have a need that he doesn't understand and you won't have a need that is he indifferent to. Jesus understands simple human need. Yeah, even some of the things that may not look that big. My wife and I um, started praying about five years ago. 
about moving, downsizing. You live right there in town a couple of blocks from the church, full acre of property and land, all the houses on that row. And it lived in a 2,800 square foot, about a 65, 70-year-old house. And we loved the place. Had a wood-burning fireplace, many, many things about it I loved and I liked. But we knew that or we were going to be traveling together quite a bit. And there'd be times I'd leave her at home, and it wasn't the best neighborhood uh, to leave her at home alone in. And so we started praying about it about five years ago. And um, sometimes we'd pray about it together. Other times we didn't. And I would ask her, are you still praying about moving? Yeah, I am. Uh, I said, I am too. And I said, I'm just not hearing anything. I just, I don't know. It's just not time, I guess. So we'd go on, and then we'd pray about it some more, and some incident would happen in our neighborhood, and such as that, and I'd give, be concerned, and I would think, yeah, we've got to do something. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, of all times this summer, this uh, late spring, early summer, it, this summer, I just, I don't know, Sandra and I looked at each other and said, it's time. I said, this is probably a terrible time to sell the house because everything's shut down, people aren't working, and such as that. It's probably a terrible time. But I said, anyway, let's go because uh, I'd become convinced in the previous couple of weeks and found a neighborhood that I'd like for us to live in, a retirement village that's uh, gated. You own your own house, but it's a homeowner's association, stuff like that. And so, yeah, I just started looking. I said, I believe I found her place. And I went by and showed her that neighborhood. She said, no, these are too small. It's about 1,500 square feet. She said, it's too small. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I just said, well, okay. I mean, you know, I want my wife to be happy, but I knew that's where we were going to live. So I just said, okay. And so I kept praying about it and praying about it. I said, Sandra, it's time we sell the house. Where are we going to live? And I said, we'll see. And so we decided to put the house up for sale. Didn't know if it was a good time or bad time. I said, here's what we're going to ask for the house. And the real estate agent said, you probably ought to up it a little bit said, uh, I don't think you're, I think you're underestimating the value of the property. Well, I'd done a lot of research, shame on me. I hadn't just put the price. I figured if I'd get that much out of it, we'd turn out all right. So I hiked it up considerable, put it on the market. It was on the market for five hours. They showed it five times in five hours. We had three offers and sold it for what we asked for it to one of those people. She said, now, what are we going to do? I mean, they, this thing's going to go. It's going to go fast. What are we going to do? I said, well, I just happened to drive through that area where you didn't like, and there's a place for sale that one of our members told me about, so let's go check it out. We checked it out, and that's where we now live. Somebody said, why are you telling that? I know, it's not that big a deal. People move all the time. But we lived in the same house 29 years, and it was a big deal to us, so we just prayed about it. We just took it to the Lord. I mean, you think God's in heaven and he's got time to be concerned about the kind of house you live in? Uh-huh. Yes, I absolutely do believe that. And the reason I believe that is he understands simple human need. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a financial deal. I don't care if it's a property deal. I don't care if it's a career deal. I don't care if it's a relationship matter. It doesn't matter if it's a health situation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. You and I don't have any kind of a circumstance that he is indifferent to. He, he, he's been here. And he gives attention to simple human need. You got something gnawing away at your life and eating you up. Um, somebody ought to write a song about this. Take it to Jesus.
or tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He is a friend that's well known. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone. He cares. They need wine. Oh, please. I've got three years to work and you're talking to me about needing wine in Cana. Yeah, he cares. He cares. Second advantage here, if you look down. Now, notice, I've got to do this fast because you held me up on that and I took too long. So look at this one, though. Notice in verse number 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone. Uh, let me just pause and say this. These would have been about nine-gallon uh, nine vessels, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't think anybody knows for sure. Somewhere in that area, nine, ten-gallon. Uh, pots of stone, can I have your attention? Common, common to people everywhere. The poorest of the households would have had vessels of stone after the pure manner of the purifying of the Jews, and it was for cleansing purpose, but it's also for household purpose. And they would have to go to a water source, and they would keep those water pots uh, there, and they would keep them filled. Water pots of stone, uh, it means that these are the most common of the vessels. Now, if you're in higher society, then you might have something like porcelain, or you'd have something painted, decorated, be decked with jewels, and such as that, to make some kind of a good show, but the poor people had simple water pots of stone. And he said to them, who's them? The servants. Jesus said, uh, Mary said uh, to the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, you do it. And so Jesus took the servants and put them to work. So here, here, excuse me just a second. Here is God come down, manifest in the flesh. It is the first recorded miracle that he does. And the instruments that he uses are pots of stone that are common to everyone and hired daytime slaves so that they might help him in this first miracle. See, when Jesus takes charge, he'll use who is available. He will. He will. I remember going to youth camp, hearing the preachers preach. I looked up to them like they were spiritual giants, and some of them maybe were. I listened to them preach, and they preach along this line, God can use your life, God can use your life. And I looked around, and I thought, well, I don't know if I see anybody God can use. He sure couldn't be talking about me, and I don't know about everybody else here. Teenage kid, and my dad was sharecropper. Where Davison name in our area wasn't. Oh, oh. I mean, my dad had a good testimony, good hard worker, but he was a sharecropper. He worked hard in the winter. He had to work like a dog because you'd only get about a good wheat crop, about one out of ten, enough to make money and not have to work in the winter like he did. Oh yeah, and they get up there and they preach that. And I can just remember not having any big ambition or just saying, I don't know. I don't know what God has. I don't know if he can use my life. I don't know. But I know this, that after I came back from youth camp and made my life right with God, and I sat in that church pew and listened to my pastor preach on that Sunday night, just about two, three weeks after I turned 16 years of age, and I sat there and listened to the preach, I know, I know, the finger of God came in my soul and said, Sam Davison, you... I'm calling you to preach. 
And I'm thinking, me? I like preachers. I like preaching. I can't preach. God couldn't use me. But there's certainly people he's used more. I can just tell you right now, I wouldn't trade the life God's given me as a servant of God and as a preacher for anything in this world. And I watch young men come to Heartland. It's, it's just so much fun when they come as boys and leave as young men. When they come as girls and leave as young ladies. You know that in almost every Bible college, numerous people here have been on the Bible college campus and had that experience. And almost everyone, you'll look at some student and you'll say, can't miss, can't miss. Talented, gifted, got all the tools, the personality. He's built right. She's the right kind of spirited lady. Oh, I can't miss people. And then 10, 15 years later, you look out and the people that are seeming to be most productive of God are seldom the people that you picked out based upon what you saw. It's usually somebody that was hardly even noticeable at Bible college, but they were yielded to God. And God took them, listen to this, because they weren't dealing perhaps with the same pride. I said maybe they weren't dealing with the same pride and the same sense of self-sufficiency. And all they did is, all they knew to do was just make themselves available to God. And God says, that's who I'm looking for. I'll just use who and what is available. Seriously, the first miracle and common water pots of stone, it's what was there. Seriously, first miracle and you've got a significant person like the governor here, and you're going to use these slaves, these hired-for-a-day slaves. This is who you're going to use. They were there, and they were available. Let me just say something to you. If you're a member of this church, and basically, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not even saying there's anybody here like this. I said if. If you're a member of this church, and basically your life is that you come, and you just kind of watch things happen, and you watch people get saved, and you watch this happen and that happen in the ministry, and people are getting baptized, and others are added to the church, and somebody's getting called to preach, and they're moving off here, and this person is going into this ministry, and that guy that I can remember when he came, and lo and behold, he's going to be a deacon, and, the, and his wife is such a blessing as well, and you just watch people. If you sit and watch it all happen, and you're not a part of it, Kind of makes you want to ask the question, are you sure he's in charge of your life? Because if he's in charge, now if you're yielded to his control of your life, if he is in fact in charge of your life, he'll use you. Oh, I'm nothing but a water pot of stone, just what he was needing right then. Did he use them? He used them. Well, who are these slaves? These guys were hired for a day. They're common. They work day to day and starve to death half the time. I mean, just uh, who, who are they? They were two people that were available to Jesus. Who are you? And are you available? It's a good question. Because when Jesus takes charge, he uses simple, common vessels. It's in like Hollywood. <laughs> no, he's not looking for the most talented, the most gifted, the most attractive, the most appealing, the one with the best background, the one with the, with, with the best heritage. 
I was telling the story at lunch about Ben Moore up in this little town in Nebraska. The, escapes, the town escapes my mind right now. But, I mean, you go to that little town in Nebraska of 2,500 or 3,000 people, you see a church where they are regularly seeing people saved and baptized while everybody else in Nebraska, well, everybody's Lutheran here, everybody's Lutheran. They just went right past the fact that everybody might have had a Lutheran background. The real issue is not were they Lutheran or Catholic or something else. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And they got people getting saved and baptized. Ben was a bus kid at Southwest Baptist Church. Parents split up to this very day. His parents think he's some kind of a nutcase. Serving the Lord. And I can remember Ben, when he was a boy, I can remember him as a boy coming down the bus. I remember when he started Heartland and how shy he was and how he was attracted to this girl, but he just couldn't bring himself to go talk to her. And now they got five kids. Yeah. Just avail yourself. And God's using him in that little town. I'm telling you, it is amazing. That's the church of the town. He's the pastor of the town. <laughs> it's, a, it's beautiful. Sure, God will do that. You make yourself available. And then notice this last thing. Fill them up with water. They did. Fill them brim. Uh, called the governor. Uh, told the servants, draw the water. They drew the water out of the vessels. And it was wine. Now take it to the governor of the, of the feast. They take it to the governor. The governor drinks it. Whoa. Now come on. You know if Jesus made it. Best wine any of them ever had. It's like when he made the bread uh, there and the coals and the fish when uh, the disciples had been out fishing. I bet that was the best they ever ate. Jesus fixed it. But anyway, comes the wine. He says... Oh, my goodness. And he goes to the bridegroom, and he says, I can't believe what you've done. What have I done? Well, what you've done, I mean, everybody else, they start out with the good wine, and then through the process of time, it gets to be the worst wine that's served, probably because they are afraid of running out, and they water it down and weaken it, and it loses some of the quality. But you've saved the best till now. And the, the groom, who is the key man of the whole thing, the bride wasn't the key person of their weddings. I wish I'd have got married over there, actually. Because the groom was the, he was the focal point of the whole thing. And he says, you have saved the best till now. Now, it doesn't say he said this, but I'm sure he said, yeah, well, Barney Five Time. Yeah, that's the way I do things. Or he might have said, I did. Because he didn't know what was going on. The governor of the feast didn't know what was going on. And, uh, and the groom himself did not know what was going on. But Jesus knew, oh yeah, the people that had yielded themselves to him, the servants, they knew also. Some of the most well-read and people who comprehend the times and the days are not sitting in public office somewhere. And they're not sitting behind big fat desks. Some of them are sitting in church pews and they love their Bible and they read their Bible and they understand their Bible and they understand the times better than people that are supposed to. Simple servants. And listen to this. When Jesus is in charge, things may start here, but it goes this way. Excuse me. Without Jesus, the natural human inclination is, oh, this is good. And then it goes downhill. Okay, I'm going to run that by one more time. The natural human inclination is it seems so good. And then it goes down. But with Jesus in charge, 
It may be good, but it only gets better. So that he is saying to him, you have saved the best till now. Now, hold on just a second. I'm not Joel Osteen. I'm not just trying to preach something positive. Let's end the meeting with everybody feeling like they're a champion. That's not where I am. I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. I'm just telling you what the book says. That we learn something here about when Jesus is in charge, because when he is in charge, you can see very, very clearly that things get better and better as the thing progresses on. And that's what he will do with your life. I said, that's what he'll do with your life. That's what he'll do with your life. That's what he'll do with your children. That's what he'll do with your marriage. That's what he'll do with your service at church. That's what he'll do with your whole life. If you will give him control, you'll think it just gets better and better. I'll never forget the lady in West Virginia a few years ago. You know Thomas Shepard. He was pastoring out there. and I preached a revival meeting there. And uh, at the end of the meeting, it was a Sunday through Friday night uh, affair. And so at the end of that meeting, this lady came up and she got a hold of my hand and said, young man, and I said, could you say that again, please? I haven't heard that much lately. She said, young man, I'm an 88-year-old mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. And she said, I don't have many days left, but I've never loved Jesus more. I've never loved the Bible more. I've never loved souls more. I've never loved missions more. And she said, I promise you till the Lord calls me home or I don't have a mind, I'm going to pray for you every day. That's what I'm going to do. Now, here's a lady, 88. You could tell time had taken toll on her body. You could tell when she walked away. She used a cane and needed a little help. You could see that she was somewhat fragile. But she wasn't saying, well, it's about over for me. No. No. Jesus, look at me a second, was so central to her life that she just couldn't see anything but joy, blessing, goodness. I can tell you right now, at 88, her life was still going this way. No, I, and you've met people like that. You've met people like You know people like that. There were probably some uh, that are my age or above that are like that in this room tonight. Praise God. That's a reality. That's a reality. And people start out without God. I can do this. I can do this. I was sharing a testimony of someone dear to me to the pastor today and kind of took off on his own journey and sort of like he's saying, I can live my life my way. I'll be fine. And for the longest time he thought, see, if God was against this, I don't know it because he hadn't done anything to me about it. And all of a sudden his world caved in. And now when he came to this place, when he realized I've been on my own, Jesus has not had charge of my life, I have not been in love with Jesus Christ, and he went through the darkest valley that he could possibly imagine. I mean a dark valley. Oh, like Paul saying, don't sail this ship. Ah, what does a preacher know? And they sailed, and the south wind was blowing softly. Is everybody with me here? But the next thing you know, they're in the midst of a storm that but by the grace of God would have taken every one of their lives, and they were saved by riding the boards to shore of the broken-up ship that had been completely destroyed. Starts out good, the south wind's blowing softly, and then down she goes. Do you know, Pastor, 
wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, I'm going to use my imagination here just a little bit. If you don't like it, just check it out. Don't worry. Wouldn't surprise me at all. If you and I or some of us get to pass each other on the way to heaven at the rapture, we don't hear each other saying, Jesus, you've saved the best till now. Can somebody join me and say, it won't be a bad thing when Jesus comes and we leave this old world. That's going to be a good thing. And it wouldn't surprise me if on the way up, when we leave this world, we're not saying, you've saved the best till now. And then we'll go to be with the Lord. In there, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, that's something we ought to talk more about. But when the judgment seat of Christ is done and everything is settled uh, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, then I believe we're actually going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're probably going to sit there and say to each other, My soul, has he saved the best till now or what? Can you believe where we are? Can you believe what has taken place? And then one day Jesus is going to say, it's time, and he'll mount that white horse, and he'll come back down here to place final judgment at the end of the thousand, uh, to begin the thousand-year reign uh, of, uh, upon this earth. And we're going to come and reign upon this earth with him. And it wouldn't surprise me if on the way down and all the time we're here, we're not saying to him, Lord Jesus, you have saved the best till now. And at the end, the devil's going to be judged cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. We are ushered into the eternal kingdom, and I don't know, but what forever we'll be saying, Lord, you've saved the best till now. See, he said, I am come that you might have life. Abundantly. You have one life. Give your life to Jesus. Not sort of. Completely. Not somewhat. Completely. Give your life to Jesus. When He takes charge, it doesn't put us under a burden. I said when He takes charge, it doesn't put us under a heavy burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He'll give us rest for our souls, and it gets better and better.